is Buy-In, a valuation podcast from Horn Healthcare. What impact will the public health emergency have on hospital M&A? What will the impact be on rural hospitals? Welcome to part two of our interview with Andy Murray, a healthcare attorney with Bradley Arant Bolt Cummings LLP in Nashville, Tennessee. If you missed part one, please go back and listen to that episode. We'll pick up right where we left off. So we're discussing now the likelihood of massive payer mix shifts given the spike in unemployment. Um, and so obviously that will impact valuation um, as we do things like project revenue. Um, valuation data is, is another issue that's really come into play um, and, and way back when, you know, when I first, to my earliest valuation training, one of the big things was 9-11. And they always use the example of uh, the value of the, the flag company um, on September 10th versus September 12th. And that always, yeah. for some reason, sticks in my mind. And outside of that, you know, extreme example, valuation date has never really had a huge impact typically uh, on valuation. But now we're, you know, we're having to educate clients on the importance of valuation dates and the valuation date uh, of the same company, but on different dates, you know, December 31st of 2019 versus May of 2020 could have very different values. And so, and again, those variances could be quite significant. We've actually seen some of those instances where we were working on deals uh, pre-COVID that obviously these things take a good bit of time. And, you know, we found ourselves, you know, in April or, or so, and we've done evaluation pre-COVID and now the parties are saying, well, hold on, everything's changed. Yeah. Um, and we're having to revisit that and figure out, you know, what, what we do with that. Um, assessing risk, you know, obviously we always assess risk on a case by case basis. Um, but obviously that's changed a lot. Um, when you look at uh, w- what is the proper risk of, of projections, say, um, well, obviously we've, we've, we've touched on what some of those issues may be. And again, this, this term uncertainty comes into play and, you know, we've got to wrestle with that in ways that we didn't uh, pre-COVID. You know, projection ramp up is another one. What, what is that going to look like? You mentioned, um, you know, hospitals seeing uh, a return to normal in some cases as early as May in June. Um, but that will vary significantly between entities and sectors of the market. And we're seeing that. We'll I'll touch on that maybe later in the, in the discussion. Stimulus money is obviously something we're wrestling with. Um, so, you know, I think the bottom line on that, you know, from a valuation perspective, we're just going to have to do what we've always done, uh, which is, you know, gather the best information we have. Um, make the best assumptions we can and try to, to, to tie back to as much objective data as we can for those assumptions and then document those decisions and apply risk um, as, as, as we feel is appropriate. Obviously, and I always say this about valuation, I'm sure you've heard this, it's, it's very much an art and not a science. <laughs> so that, that definitely yeah. uh, may be more so uh, now than ever that's uh, coming into focus. So, Rudd, have you received any pressure from parties to just kind of ignore the last few months and treat them as an extraordinary event and rely on adjusted financials, for instance, for uh, purposes of determining evaluation of a business? I mean, I'm sure the sellers are pushing for that. But, Absolutely. And I know, yes. I know we've got some clients who, you know, frankly, are in a, in a position where 
they are seeing this as a big opportunity to go out and, 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 uh, look for some, some good transactions right. and transactions right. they may not been able to do, but they're also very mindful of not coming across as being predatory. Right. Um, and so frankly, I've got some of my clients who are buyers who are saying, look, we think this is going to come back. And so we don't, we're not trying to come in here and fleece these folks, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and buy it for half of what it's really worth. We think that this business has this core value, but are you really sure it's going to come back? <laughs> because right. I don't think we all really, nobody really knows no, how much no. is going to come back. <laughs> and if you, if you'd asked me two weeks ago, my answer would be different then than it is today. Just, right. you know, we've seen so many, so much in the news about spikes in cases, increased hospitalizations, you know, in, in, in since the last, last podcast I did, you know, I live in Baton Rouge and while we have a, a, a mask order in place, we've never had that until now. So the mayor actually put in a, a citywide mask ordinance. And up until now, you know, we were kind of going in the other direction. We were kind of coming out of some of that, coming out of social distancing, things were opening up, restaurants were back open. Uh, we were seeing, you know, we're seeing a lot more people in the office here, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden we've got a mask order in place where, you know, and we're several months into this. So again, if things are changing and this, this, uh, I come back to uncertainty. So it's very hard to predict. And I wouldn't have necessarily predicted that three weeks ago that our mayor was going to put in a mask ordinance. We were on, seemed to be on a different track at that point. So go back to your question. Yes, we have certainly run into that. Um, and we've seen some kind of, we've had some sort of adversarial conversations about that. As you know, as we try to pick a valuation date, um, one party, obviously the seller have, you know, pushed for December 31st in some cases, uh, whereas the seller is like, well, no, that, that we've got to, we've got to do it as of now. We've got financial data through say June. Um, let's, let's look at it at that way. Um, and, you know, with valuation, you know, you, you put your blinders on, you know, go back to my September 10th flag company example. We didn't know anything about September 11th uh, on September 10th. So if I was valuing that flag company, I, you know, even if I were doing it in, uh, you know, end of September, I would have to put my blinders on and say, all right, we didn't know about that. We would have valued it um, based on what we knew as of, as of that date and time. And so if we pick a date pre COVID, we have to put our blinders on and look at it as if it wasn't, wasn't known or knowable uh, as of that date. So definitely it, it has created some, some situations like that. Um, you know, it really it determines uh, based on what the clients agree to do and what we're asked to do, um, you know, by whoever we're being engaged to, to do that. We, we certainly can advise them as to what we think um, is the best thing to do and what the ramifications are from choosing one or the other. But ultimately we have done a few that they said, Hey, we want to do December 31st and we valued it that way. Um, and I think in, in those cases, uh, and that has not been you know, the norm. I don't think we've done a couple that way. Uh, I think what they're really thinking is, well, this is going to be a drawn out process and we're going to revisit this, you know, in several months and we may have to update the valuation. Um, that may have been more of a placekeeper to keep the deal and the conversation moving forward. But it's, it's certainly, and I expect it to, to continue to be an issue. And again, going back to depending on the sector we're dealing with, and let's say the medical specialty, it could make a tremendous difference. Um, so, you know, obviously, I think that will continue to be uh, an issue, um, especially as we 
if things don't move forward and we continue to have spikes and more uncertainty, right. I think that will continue to exacerbate that issue. Well, and in the, in the hospital space, it frankly is not as concerning. It, it, the, the, the healthcare regulatory issues are typically not as prevalent in terms of valuation in a hospital acquisition. You know, right. there are, there are oftentimes like tax exempt issues that you have to deal with. And, mm-hmm. um, and if you do have one hospital that's buying out a competitor and there may be potential, you know, referral sources or one another going forward, but it's certainly not nearly as, um, as sensitive as a transaction between a hospital buying a physician practice, right? right. Because that doctor is going to be in a position to refer patients and, um, you know, then, and the healthcare regulatory penalties are obviously phenomenal. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, it, it's certainly in the hospital context, it's probably, it, it's probably not as big of a concern of being second guessed later on. Right. Um, but, uh, and the ramifications of it are probably not as substantial. But, certainly, uh, certainly. I was just curious cause I definitely have seen some of that with, with our clients, um, you know, going both directions, frankly. Right. Right. And I, you know, frankly, I expect to see more of that. Yeah. Um, now as we get more and more, you know, you know, those were deals probably in the early days. Um, as we get it more, I guess, immersed in COVID, then it becomes more of like, this is what we're dealing with. This is the market that we're all in. That will probably diminish. You'll probably see less argument to say, Oh, we're going to, we're going to look pre COVID because it just gets too far out too. I mean, right. it becomes a point in time when, why are you going so far back in time to do evaluation when you've got current data? Uh, mm-hmm. So that argument will probably lose some steam. It was more that early days transition period where it was becoming more the reality that we were probably seeing more of that push to, Oh, we want to see it. We want to see this pre COVID. And of course there's the argument that well, this isn't going to have a big impact on our business. We're going to recover, et cetera. Well, maybe, maybe not. We don't know. <laughs> um, well, let me transition a little bit. You know, we talked about, um, what the drivers were for M&A post public health emergency. What, what do you see, if anything, that will be different about these deals um, going forward? Sure. So, I mean, many of the core principles and fundamentals are going to be the same, right? In, in mm-hmm. addition to financial considerations, which are always a big driver of whether you do a transaction at all, um, fraud and abuse and regulatory compliance concerns are always one of the biggest concerns that you deal with in a potential transaction just because of the one of the major liabilities that's out the potential contingent liabilities is a Medicare Medicaid you know fraud and abuse liabilities that might hang over Um, so I don't expect a great change there I expect continued um, focus on that now the 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 change one change that that would tie in with respect to the fraud and abuse diligence is all the waivers that are out there and um, you know how long there, there are, there's no doubt there are going to be some interpretive issues that, that arise, right? Because um, a lot of, a lot of hospital systems, when, when the waivers came out at the start of COVID, uh, you know, in late March, early April, you know, frankly, I heard from a lot of in-house attorneys who just said, look, we're just, we've got to roll with this. We don't have time to waste, you know, we need to take advantage of these waivers and move on and we'll figure it out later. Right. right. Um, And I think there's going to be a lot of second guessing and, and there's going to be some interpretations that, that come out. Um, and, and there are probably going to be some folks that um, forget to unwind some of those deals mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or to adjust them back. I know, um, you know, some, some folks have been smart enough to draft the documents in a way so that they automatically flip back to the old terms. 
um, to the extent oh, they're world terms. Um, I know I think Bob Humchick talked about that on one of your prior podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everybody's had the time to do that um, or the foresight. And so that's going to be a, a, an additional area of diligence. The other thing is obviously there are, there are new diligence items to take into account that, that are completely driven by the public health emergency. So, um, you know, for instance, the, one of the things that's going to be diligence is, is the, the COVID provider relief funds and whether the, whether the, the seller handled those properly and, and accurately uh, attested and returned amounts and, and accounted for them. And, and, you know, for the, it slowed down a little bit, but for a while there, the rules changed every single day. There were new updates on the FAQs in terms of how you measure the, the incremental losses and, and expenses and, and what you could and couldn't uh, take into consideration. Um, and, and uh, you know, it, it, and the, the rules differ or are going to be applied differently in an asset deal versus a stock deal. In an asset deal, it's really the seller's problem, but in a stock deal, it's even more complicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so, and we've actually closed a couple of stock deals during this period. And so it's been, it was pretty interesting drafting and negotiating um, provisions about how you're going to deal with um, the allocation of uh, provider relief funds as the rules were changing. (laughs) Right. Um, and so th- those are, th- and, you know, t- looking at p- PPP funds, uh, Medicare advanced payments. And as I said before, if those rules change to where um, any of those dollars get forgiven, or if they don't, you've still got to take into account if you've got a, if you got a hospital that received $30 million of Medicare advanced payments, you got to make sure you're tracking that because that's going to come out of uh, the back end of your payments after you close the transaction, right. um, if they've already been repaid. Uh, there's things like payroll tax deferrals and making sure you track those dollars. Um, there are uh, obviously malpractice liability and just liability that might arise as a result of providing services to patients with COVID. Um, you know, there, there are, there are going to be a whole host of issues. As you said before, some folks are going to be diligent. Well, how did you deal with it and how are you going to be prepared going forward, especially for deals that are closing in the next few months or before the end of the year when we're, we're not going to be out of the woods yet. We'll take a quick break. Stay tuned for more with Andy Murray. Buy-in is brought to you by Horn Healthcare. For over 60 years and with more than 70 dedicated accounting and advisory professionals, Horn Healthcare is a decidedly different firm. Find us online at hornllp.com. And we're back. Let's dive right in. From a financial perspective, it's going to be really interesting to see how acquirers are valuing hospitals. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, in, in many hospital transactions, um, the valuation analysis is, it's a different analysis than in a physician hospital transaction, right? Because right. you're looking at fairness from a tax exempt perspective, but some of it really comes down to, um, look, I might have hospital assets that the book value of which is $10 million but I'm losing $2 million a month in running right. this thing. Right. So I'm willing to give it to you, you know, even though the book value is more than, uh, than, than what you're paying for it. Um, and so um, it's just a different analysis sometimes in the, in the hospital context. Um, you know, I'll be interested to see whether, whether buyers are willing to pay the same types of EBITDA and revenue multiples we've seen historically. You know, I mean, in some of these areas, you know, somebody would ask you, well, what type of EBITDA multiple should I be paying for a hospital? Well, you know, the range has been somewhere seven to nine times for forever, right? Right. Um, 
and then in, you know, you blocks of, you know, multi-facility transactions, maybe you get a higher multiple, et cetera. Um, I, I, it'll be very interesting to see how that, how that moves forward and whether some of that changes because of the, uh, public health emergency. And then, um, you know, the other thing is if a hospital, you know, had half a billion dollars in excess cash pre COVID, but burned through a large bit of that, um, in order to, to, to weather the storm, how are acquirers going to view that hospital? I mean, are they going to, is it going to be viewed as healthy as it was before the, uh, the public health emergency? Right. Right. Um, well, I think the bar will have shifted too on what is right. considered healthy and, and not exactly. healthy too. Exactly. And then, you know, um, a, a lot of transactions in the hospital space, um, particularly when, when the seller is a nonprofit, uh, whether, and that's is whether the buyer, if you will, is a for-profit or nonprofit capital commitments are, are a big piece of the piece of the consideration you know, our, our nonprofits and for-profit acquirers going to be willing to make as large of a commitment going forward uh, in, in, in the face of uncertainty of, you know, are they going to have excess capital to be right. spreading around to these, right. these, these acquired facilities? And then, as you mentioned earlier, what, what changes might payer mix have? I mean, this is, it, it may have a real impact on the willingness and the appetite of an acquired to, to take over charity care commitments um, at a particular facility. And again, this is a lot of this is going to be regionally is going to vary regionally because as you said, some of the payer mixes are going to be much stronger in some markets are going to remain consistent. And and in others, they're, they're not where there, where there's been a huge, when there, where there's been a disproportionate economic impact. Absolutely. Uh, And I guess the other considerations are just how the delivery model changes um, for hospitals and health systems are going to be impacted going forward. I mean, you've, you've talked about telehealth and how that's impacting physicians. Um, what, what trickle down effect is that going to have on hospitals um, and some of their outpatient clinics and, and other settings? I mean, um, you know, what impact is it going to have when doctors are, are seeing patients at home on their computer? Right. <laughs> you know? um, and, 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 you know, a, an interesting side impact is, you know, a lot of hospitals are, as you, as you indicated before, many of them are, are big real estate conglomerates, you know, right. And they have large medical office buildings that they've built all around their campus that are filled with physician practice, many of whom are independent physician practices. Right. Right. Um, and, some of those are owned buildings and a lot of them are, are now mastered leased by the hospitals where they've got a 20 year commitment to fill the buildings. Well, mm-hmm. they may not be able to fill those buildings with pay, with tenants that are willing to pay anymore, at least well, not, yeah, not it, really it, the same size. Yeah. To, to get to telehealth. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, will they, will, will physicians need the kind of space that they've needed in the past? Um, yeah. I think that could change as, and, and will they need the same level of staff? Um, as they've needed in the past. I think the, we could see a real paradigm shift there and telehealth is one that, you know, will, will certainly drive a lot of that. I think, I think the consensus is that the, you know, the public health emergency has been this watershed moment for telehealth and that we will see telehealth carry on beyond the public health emergency in, in some form. Of course, you know, permanent change will require congressional action, but it seems that telehealth is probably maybe one of a, a very few, particularly in an election year that in, that enjoys bipartisan support. Um, yeah. I think another big thing to consider there, you know, if we're talking about, you know, what's going to happen with telehealth is with so much of the industry rapidly trending towards telehealth, I think it'd be very difficult 
to go back to pre-COVID reimbursement levels. I think that would be just cause a lot of disruption in and of itself. So for all of those reasons and, and many others, I think, I think the consensus is that we will see telehealth carry forward, if not exactly in the form it is now, something similar to that. But how that impacts valuation, I think uh, if payers continue the parity tr trend between physical and telehealth care, telehealth could average out, I mean, this is just a guess, I mean, maybe 30 to 50% of visit, visits post-COVID. So that does get into those things we just mentioned, you know, space needs, um, staff needs, and things like that. Uh, um, obviously, practices and other providers will need to stand up telehealth programs and, and wrestle with reimbursement. Um, and all of that will be, you know, in some cases, a, a, a significant upfront investment, um, but one that should pay off over time. And so that'll have to be incorporated into the valuation analysis. Um, so if we're, we're valuing a practice or other provider and they don't have telehealth, we may have to increase their discount rate or use some mm -hmm. other valuation measure like layer in CapEx to account for that. Um, and so that's something that from a valuation perspective, we're going to have to really probably beef up our data requests and, and really ask the subject entity things about, you know, what is their plan? Where are they now? How are they implementing telehealth and, you know, uh, uh, things like their IT structure? What does that look like? Um, I know we're, we're sort of running short on time, and this is one one area I definitely want to touch on and get your input on, and and that's what's the impact on rural hospitals? You know, uh, rural hospitals were, were under tremendous strain before COVID, and so even more so afterwards. So, you know, they've been per hit particularly hard, and we deal with a lot of uh, where we're situated. We deal with a lot of rural hospital clients, and, you know, most have seen a devastating decline in elective care. Uh, they were already operating on very thin margins uh, already. Um, so, you know, what, 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 and, and I guess one question I would have and like to get your input on in particular is, that, you know, as we talk about M&A um, and we talk about, you know, players that come into the market that, that are stronger for a lot of the various reasons we talked about being in a, in a, in a better position to, to, uh, to seek out, uh, geographic or other, um, you know, strategies related to M&A with these with various targets that, that may be much more attractive now than they were uh, pre-COVID. It seems like to me there's an added complication with rural facilities. They may not necessarily be an attractive target uh, for some of the things we've already mentioned. Uh, it may not really fit uh, a lot of acquirers' uh, target needs. So, what are your thoughts on that? What what will be the impact on rural hospitals, um, and how will they how will they fit in to to, to M and A post COVID? Yeah, so I, I guess what I would say to that is, um, not all rural hospitals are created equally, <laughs> right? And and sure. you know there are and a lot of it's again depends upon what their surrounding market looks like. Um, I, I think we are going to continue to see what we saw you know, over the last 10 years, we have had, we've been involved in a lot of hospital closures um, mm -hmm. and, yes. and they're, and it, they're going on across the country. And I think they're going to continue to go on. And, and in some places they need to, because they're over bedded areas and, and they're, mm -hmm. they're uh, a lot of the smaller hospitals aren't equipped to handle the more complex cases that, right. that need to be in a hospital. Uh, but there are also, there are certainly communities that are, are going to struggle without having a local hospital. Um, 
And so I think we're going to continue to see some consolidation. And I think we are going to continue to see some of these uh, larger regional systems reach out and um, bring into their fold some of the smaller rural hospitals. Frankly, a lot of those things <laughs> probably should have already happened. Um, and there are probably reasons why some of these hospitals haven't been brought in into the fold. And what may end up happening is it may just, there may just be a different model. As you mentioned, the micro hospitals, I'm not sure that the micro hospitals are going to work in all those situations, mm -hmm. but you know, you're seeing, you're seeing some hospitals that are being small, you know, rural hospitals that have been shut down and turned and in, converted into emergency departments of mm -hmm. the next, the hospital, the larger hospital in the next town over. Um, I think there's going to be continue to be more of that activity. There, there are still going to be some rural hospitals that flourish. And some of that just depends upon um, where they're located and whether there is a, uh, a, a large system nearby that's, that's poaching patients, you know, able to poach patients or, right. um, and, you know, are they in a, in a market where uh, they're isolated enough where they really need to exist? You know, um, so I, I think it's going to continue to be a struggle in some markets and in, and in others, um, they're, they're going to continue to thrive. And then in others, there's going to, there's going to have to be an evaluation of the model to figure out, maybe we need to do things a little differently here. Maybe, maybe right. we can't just keep trying to operate as an acute care hospital that is a miniaturized version, 25 beds, you know, version of this bigger hospital in, in, uh, you know, in, in, in downtown urban areas. Um, and so I think that some of that's going to be driven by policy is my guess. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there may be some policy changes that, um, that, that may drive us towards a different model for some of, to, to try to continue to make care accessible. Um, but in maybe a different way. Yeah. I, I, I see a lot of what you mentioned there. I, I agree with, and I, I do think that it, it, it really changes, I think the landscape, and uh, the the mindset in some ways, and maybe it's a paradigm shift. Um, you know, we healthcare I think has been disrupted like it's never been disrupted before. Um, and so I think we I think a lot of players are going to look at things differently and be willing to um, consider other alternatives or different ways of doing things going forward. Just if nothing else, just because of the exposure. You know, we mentioned before uh, in these in these different discussions that. Uh, up until until the public health emergency, I was at least I can speak for myself. Kind of looked at healthcare as insulated from the the economic downturns and some of the things we've seen across uh, other industries. Uh, and, and that's just that's you know I think that that mindset or that idea has been obliterated. Um, and so it's it's really changed I think the way we have to approach things like rural care and what's viable and what's not viable. And I, I, I think it's ripe for disruption as well. Um, so I do think we're gonna see some changes there. And there will be, obviously, like you mentioned, it, it'll be case specific and there'll be winners and losers. But I do think, um, I think it will, it, it will improve things in my mind. The, the, the existing model just was not sustainable. And, and we've known that for a while. I think this will be a catalyst for quicker change. Um, going forward. And I think we'll see some innovative things happen. Uh, and we've already seen it to some extent, but I think we'll see that that accelerate re relative to, to rural facilities in particular. Well, um, believe it or not, I think we've uh, run out of time. It's, it's amazing how quickly the time flies when we get into these discussions, but I think we've exhausted the time that they've allowed for us today. Andy, it's been 
it's been a real pleasure to, to have you on our show and to hear your insights. And we really appreciate you taking the time and uh, speaking with us today. Well, Rod, I, I really appreciate the invitation. It's been, I've, I've also enjoyed the conversation. It's nice to hear your perspective on things and, and uh, it's been a very enjoyable conversation. So thank you. Likewise. Uh, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in today. This is Rudd Blumentritt from Horn. Until next time. Thank you for listening to Buy-In, a podcast from Horn Healthcare. Buy-In is produced by Horn LLP. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. For more about Horn, visit hornllp.com.